This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. Why? Because it is at Christmas time that want is most keenly felt and abundance rejoices. Uh, what can I put you down for? <laughs> Nothing. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, sir, that is my answer. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. And some would rather die. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, it's not my business. Isn't it, sir? No. It is enough for a man to understand his own business without interfering with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, everybody, and welcome back for another exciting episode of History Off the Page. Those were the words of Ebenezer Scrooge from the 1951 movie classic A Christmas Carol, one of the first of many film adaptations of Charles Dickens' 1843 novella by the same name. Now, my guess is that most of you are probably pretty familiar already with the basic story here. But just in case you aren't, the plot revolves around this miserly guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, whose greed and lack of compassion for his fellow man are transformed by the spirit of Christmas. It's, of course, it's a core Christmas movie, right? It brings out many of the spirits and many of the ideas that we often associate with Christmas. As you can tell from the clip, he starts out thinking only of himself, but over the course of the the book and then the movie, he's visited by these three ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And because of what he sees in these visions, he decides to change his wicked ways. Now, in particular, one of the plot lines is that he has this clerk named Bob Cratchit, who's kind of like a a lower middle class guy, hard worker, well-meaning. He has a a decent sized family and this sickly little kid named Tiny Tim. And Scrooge basically tries to work him to death, tries to take advantage of Bob Cratchit whenever he can. After seeing these three kind of Christmases, he changes his tune. He decides he kind of wants to befriend Cratchit. Uh, At the end of the the novella, he gives him a raise and he buys the family a turkey for Christmas dinner, something that we'll see was actually quite a delicacy in the period. Now, it's not hard to imagine what this scene looks like, given our 21st century fascination with Victorian cities and culture, especially around Christmas time. I live in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and every year around Christmas time, we have an event called Dickens of a Christmas, and everybody dresses up. People walk around singing Christmas carols. We kind of all pretend like we live in London in the 1840s. You know, we say, good day to you, sir. Do you have a halfpenny? Things like that. And we we kind of pretend like snow is falling in the background. And so, of course, this Dickinsonian classic, it's, again, one of these core ideas of Christmas. It's these core representations in our minds, at least in the United States, 
of what Christmas is supposed to look like. Write that and, and a wonderful life. But Dickens' classic is very much a product of its time. It's not just a, oh, let's tell the nice story of Christmas, but it is also concerned with social changes that are reshaping British society as much as it is illuminating, again, this kind of pre-commercialized spirit of Christmas. And we can get a sense of some of these concerns in the brief scene that I just played for you, where the well-off Scrooge refuses to help the poor. Somebody comes to him and says, can you make a donation? We're collecting money for charity. And he kind of responds to that by saying about the poor, if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Right? So thinking in these very cold, very economic, one might say very rational, if inhumane, terms. Now, these are not just the abstract words of a fictional character kind of invented by Dickens for artistic purposes, but they reflect the tendency of some of Dickens' contemporaries to rationalize or ignore the explosion of poverty that was experienced as part of the transition to an industrial society. And as we'll see in today's episode, 19th century European cities were basically overrun by this massive influx of migrants coming largely from rural areas. And this massive influx of people creates severe problems. We're talking here about problems of overcrowding, problems of poverty. There's a public health crisis that follows. And it's important to note that in the end, we're not just talking here about a nuisance. We're not just talking here about, oh, okay, here's just another issue that that happens to come up. But like the three inventions that we talked about in our last episode on industrialization, this crisis created by the overcrowding, by the slums, by the poverty, this will actually begin to transform consciousness. If you're wondering, where does socialism come from? Where does this idea come from that we should all be kind of organized and identify not with kind of cultural things, not with nations, not with localities where we're born, not with our religious groups that we belong to or don't belong to, but that we should really be thinking primarily in economic terms, that class should be the basis and the kind of number one identity that we carry. If you're wondering where that notion comes from, it starts in these slums in the 19th century. Okay, so let's start just with some raw numbers to help you get a sense of When I say this massive influx of people, what am I actually talking about, right? We live in a world where basically every 10 years, it seems, the global population increases by a billion people, and yet we aren't experiencing, for the most part, these tremendous questions of overcrowding and population, at least not to the same degree or extent as they experienced during the early phases of the Industrial Revolution. So what are we talking about here? Basically, between the years 1750 and 1850, the population of non-European Russia rises by almost 70%. That's about 83 million people, if we want to put it in specific numerical terms. Now, again, if I say, oh, the population increases by 83 million, most of you would kind of shrug your shoulders and go, that's not really much, right? We live on Spaceship Earth. Spaceship Earth, it, it seems, I don't know the mathematics of it, but 83 million people, that seems like a couple weeks of population increase here on planet Earth. But to put that number into perspective, between 1600 and 1700, Europe only has an increase of just about 10 million people. The population of non-European Russia is only about 90 million people in 1600. 
And so we're talking about, again, this kind of exponential growth, right? What if the population of the United States in 70 years basically doubled? That would be pretty consequential. That would be something that you would notice. Now, another interesting factor about this kind of demographic change is that it tends to focus primarily on cities. We'll explain why in just a moment, but most of these these people that are being born, this surplus population, if you will, they don't just happen universally. They're born in rural areas, and then they come into the cities. And so populations of cities themselves will explode. Again, just to give you some numbers to kind of drive this home, in 1750, there's only two cities in all of Great Britain with a population of more than 50,000 people. 50,000 is, is not a very large number by today's standards, but at the time, that's the big city. We're talking here, of course, about London, but also Edinburgh. In 1801, we're up to eight cities of more than 50,000. And by 1851, we're talking about 29 cities. Again, just to kind of give you some numbers, the population of the city of London, it was already big in 1800, it was about 900,000, but 50 years later, it is 2.3 million. So in the course of 50 years, in the course of someone's lifetime, the population of the city of London more than doubles. Other cities experience even more tremendous growth. The city of Glasgow in Scotland grows from about 30,000 people in 1750. So it would have been thought of as a large town. It's, it's fairly big. But just 100 years later, it is 357,000. So we're talking about more than 10 times the number of inhabitants in just 100 years' time. Now, I started off by talking about British towns and cities, and most of today's episode will focus on the British Empire because industrialization and population growth kind of start there a little bit earlier than on the continent. But if we went through a thorough sort of description of Paris, if we went through Lyon, if we went through Berlin, places like that, you'd see a pretty similar pattern of growth. Paris grows from about 550,000 in 1801 during the Napoleonic Wars to over 1 million inhabitants by 1846. The once provincial capital of Berlin, which at the end of the 17th century, it only has 17,000 inhabitants. It's pretty small. It grows by the early 1800s to 172,000 people. And by the end of the 1840s, it is over 400,000 people. So again, that's doubling, not even the course of someone's lifetime, that's doubling in the time period between when someone was, let's say, growing up as a teenager and when they're in their early 40s. So over the course of someone's career, the size of your town or your city could double. So let's think for just a second about what the consequences of that are. Imagine if the the town that you live in or the village or the city, imagine if the size of it doubles in, let's say, just 20 or 30 years. Where are you going to put everybody? Where's everybody going to live? Now, of course, today we have an easy answer to that, right? We build high rises. If you go to a place like New York City, if you go to Manhattan, you go to Brooklyn, if you go to London, you go to Frankfurt, Milan, you'll notice that there's a lot of skyscrapers, right? There's a lot of big buildings we build up 
And that's enabled us to, to kind of pack more people in. We don't have that, especially at the beginning of the 19th century. Steel really comes into vogue maybe in the middle of the 19th century, depending on where you are. And even then, it doesn't pay to build a lot of sort of skyscrapers for people that are, let's say, at the bottom end of the economic scale. You're only going to invest that kind of money if you can make it back through rents. Thinking more broadly, though, and just, okay, where are people going to live? How is that going to impact your daily life? How are you going to get from the place you live to the place that you work? If we double the amount of people living in your town or your city. Now, of course, we have cars today. So people would say, okay, well, where am I going to park my car? Am I going to sit in traffic for a long time? And okay, they didn't have cars at the beginning of the 19th century, but you still have horses. You have omnibuses, which are basically carts that are pulled by horses. You have literally people moving about. So how are people going to get from place to place? What about resources? Are we going to have enough food to feed all these people? How are we going to distribute that food? What about waste? What about sanitation? If we double the number of people living in your city, can your sanitation systems handle that? There's economic consequences as well. If I said we're going to double the population of your city, a lot of businesses would say, well, that's great. If I'm running a restaurant, we're going to double the number of people. Well, that means twice as many potential customers. But think about the effect that this might have, especially on small businesses, or what we would call today small businesses. What if you're running that mom-and-pop hardware shop? The bigger your city or town gets, the more the chances are that the kind of big dogs are going to come in and kind of take over that market. Right? If we're here in the United States, a Home Depot or a Lowe's is going to come in, and all of a sudden, because of economies of scale, that mom-and-pop shop is not going to be able to compete. If you're a movie buff and you like, you've got mail from the early 90s with uh, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, right? It's the story of the little mom and pop bookshop, but then in comes the big bad Fox Books chain store. How can they possibly compete? Obviously, that's a 21st century story, more or less. But the same thing goes on when you start to have these, this process of industrialization and urbanization at the beginning of the 19th century. Most importantly, what happens to your sense of community? We haven't talked about this a lot in contemporary politics, but what happens when your little town or your village starts to become a bedroom community for a larger town? What happens when all these strangers start moving in and buying up the property, but they're not really tied to your local community in a way that they have historically been? What happens as you start to transition from a community where you know your neighbors, you know the people that live across the street, you know the people that live down the street. Even if you don't personally know everyone on the street, you more or less trust them. You know that they kind of live in the neighborhood. You kind of feel a sense of common identity together. But what happens when you have this massive growth of population? You know, it used to be in the 1950s in many American towns into the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s when I was growing up, parents let their kids play basically wherever they wanted to. You know, the idea was you come home from school, do your homework, okay, get out of the house and and leave mom and dad alone. And nowadays, of course, we don't do that, partially because we don't know what else is out there in our communities. 
who else is out there in our communities. In the big city, it becomes impossible to isolate yourself from the stranger. And so that produces a lot of anxiety. That also starts to redefine the sense of community, right? What makes you feel a sense of common identity with other people? Before the 19th century, a large part of that is geographic, right? It's, it's where you're born. It's where you're from. But as we'll see, as more and more people move into these cities, it becomes harder and harder to establish a sense of identity based on common geography and common history. So while most of what I've been talking about so far is, is just raw numbers, what we're talking about is an event that will literally change consciousness and change the societies that we're examining. Why do we suddenly get this gigantic explosion of population? There's a couple sort of parts to the equation here. The first is basically a massive increase in the food supply itself. One of the things that starts to happen, especially in England in the 17th century, it's often been given as a reason as to why industrialization starts in England first, is this rationalization of land, which was called the enclosure movement. Basically, if we're thinking about land ownership and, and kind of geographically, how does that happen spatially? How does that happen? Traditionally speaking, it's based on tradition. It's basically based on history. Where was the plot that your parents had, your grandparents, that sort of thing. And so because this land usage begins in an era when there's a lot of land available, it tends to not be rationalized. It tends not to fall into kind of neat geometric shapes, right? Everything should kind of be a square or a rectangle if we're thinking about maximizing the use of land. Of course, if we're talking about history, then we're also talking about breaking things up, right? We're talking about families that people die, there's inheritance, right? And so plots kind of get messy. People die that don't have descendants to inherit the property. And so basically, in both England and on the continent, land ownership tends to be kind of spotty, tends to be a little disorganized, a little organic, if you want to use a nicer term. At the start of the 17th century, in England especially, they started to rationalize land distribution. They started to say, let's put all these kind of disparate plots that are all over the place, let's combine them into one sort of square land section. And so basically, they really start increasing the amount of land available for cultivation. Another part of this story is that there's a lot of public land. There's a lot of kind of communal land uh, where, you know, you can take your cows, you can take your sheep, but it's not really under cultivation. And as part of this enclosure movement, they start enclosing that land, for lack of a better term, and they start making it available for people to farm. So more food is going to be available. The more food we have, the more people are going to survive. Now, another element of the story isn't just the raw acreage that becomes kind of cultivated, but the yield also begins to rise in part because of changes to the climate. Basically, during the 16th and 17th century, we have this thing called the Little Ice Age that takes place. So global temperatures go down. One of the things that you start to see is glaciers start advancing. It's not uncommon in major rivers like the Thames in the UK or even large portions of the Baltic Sea. It's not uncommon for them to completely freeze over. You know, so I'm recording this podcast in January of 2022. The idea that the entire River Thames would freeze over, everybody could go get your ice skates, go out there, you know, skate around, it'll be fun. 
That was something that was going on during this period of the Little Ice Age. Massive snowfalls happening in places like North America. You know, think about George Washington up at Valley Forge. That's happening in the midst of this thing called the Little Ice Age. But basically, by the start of the early 1800s, the Little Ice Age ends, the climate starts to warm, and crops will now grow longer, they will grow more heartily. And so again, the yield of what is being produced by farms in Europe tends to go up. Finally, two other factors that we've talked about already on this podcast. One of the things that we have are medical discoveries relating to the scientific revolution. We talked about this in our bonus podcast on the scientific revolution, but one of the things people do is they realize that the human body is a machine. And so if we realize the human body is a machine, then we can control it, we can fix it, we can repair it, and people will start living longer as we start making better medical choices. The other thing that's going on is we have less violence. We talked about the crisis of order from the 17th century, all this violence, religious violence, social violence, political violence, kind of vocational violence. The 17th century is not a fun period to live through. It's an incredibly violent period. And we saw in reaction to that, we had things like absolutism, we had the Enlightenment. And by the time we get to the post-Napoleonic period, those efforts seem to be paying off. There is just less violence in Europe in the 19th century than there had been before. And so more people will survive. The more people survive, the more babies they have. Now they've got more food to eat. More people will survive. The population starts to grow exponentially. Now, of course, a key question is, okay, so the population is growing. Why are they leaving the farms? Why are they all coming to the cities? If I had my choice between living in a cramped up slum or living on a farm with, with nature and you know, nice, uh, reliable food supply, why would I move to the big city? Well, the answer has something to do with the economics of life on a farm. If you think about a farm, one of the things that you need, besides obviously land and seed and animals and things like that, is you need labor. And we talked about this on our lecture on industrialization. What's the number one source of labor for people before 1800? It's people. It's human power. So on a farm, you have various jobs that need to be done. You have fields that need to be plowed. You have animals that need to be taken care of, cows that need to be milked, pigs that need to be separated, all that kind of stuff, right? So there is a specific amount of labor that you need. Well, before the 1800s, life expectancy is not very long. You also have a relatively high mortality rate, about one in five Children that are born actually die before they're about two or three years old. And so you want to have a big family to make sure that you have enough people to run the farm. If I don't have enough children, if I only have, let's say, one or two kids, I'm not going to have enough labor to keep the farm running. Now, I can supplant that by hiring some outsiders. There is kind of temporary labor that I can bring in. But for the most part, I want to have as big a family as possible just to make sure that I have enough bodies to do all the work that needs to be done. But what happens when more of those children start to survive? When instead of having five children out of eight survive, now I have seven out of eight or nine survive. Well, there's a finite amount of work that can be done on a farm. There's only so many fields that need to be plowed. There's only 
so many hours that can be spent milking the cow. If you keep milking your cow after the cow is out of milk, it's not going to help you any. If you run out of land to farm, there's not extra land that you can just go and farm. And so basically, this surplus population that's, that starts surviving by the time you get to about 1800, there's nothing left on the farm for them to do in an economic sense. They can't contribute anymore to make the farm more efficient, to produce more food themselves. What they do do, of course, is consume resources. They consume the food that you have. And so basically, these people, there's nowhere else for them to go, so they will migrate to the cities where they can then begin to sell their labor. And we'll talk about specifically what they do in just a second. Now let's spend a few moments thinking about who these migrants actually are. Who is it that is going to leave the farm? Is it going to be grandpa, who maybe is, is not as uh, effective in terms of labor, maybe he's not as strong as he was, maybe he's grown old. Is grandpa, after living for 50 years on a farm, is he going to pull up shop and, and go to the big city and, and try to sell his labor? Right? Who wants to hire a 50 or 60-year-old man to do construction when you can hire a 20-something or a teenager even? So the people that are going to be more mobile, this tends to be true as a constant across history, the people that are going to be more mobile are the youngsters. It's not the dad or the grandpa or the oldest brother, it's the youngest brother. It's the one who's not married yet, who doesn't have a family, who doesn't have kind of weights tying him or her down to the local community. And so, as a result, the people that are moving into these cities are overwhelmingly young, and they are overwhelmingly single. Now, what do these people do when they get there? As you might imagine, coming from a, a farm background, these people do have some skills, but as we talked about, they don't necessarily have skills that translates well to an industrial economy. They don't have the ability to read and write and do mathematics in the way that a modern person would because you've been to a public school or a private school, but you've been to some sort of formal schooling. And so what do they do? Well, they tend to do jobs that require the least amount of skills. And these jobs tend to be at the bottom end of the economic ladder. So if you're a man, what are you going to do? What do people do today when they show up? Especially immigrants that come into industrialized economies but that don't speak the language of the place that they're moving into, what do they do? They get involved in kind of blue-collar uh, trades. Some, some are skilled and will work in skilled trades. Think about things like carpentry, plumbing, things like that. But in the 19th century, many of them will work in jobs that demand a lot of physical labor but isn't necessarily specialized. So we're talking about jobs like working in a factory, working in construction, mining, Right? Think about what does it take to, to mine? Well, you don't have to be able to speak the language. You don't have to have any sort of real fine developed skills, at least in the 19th century. Obviously, today it's a little bit different. But you just go in, here's your pickaxe, hack the coal, pick up the coal, put the coal on the mine cart, etc. Now, women also come in large numbers into these big cities. And the number one thing that they do is domestic service. We're talking here about things like being maids, cooks. In some cases, you might find yourself as a tutor, but that's, that's probably more rare for women. 
So you have these large numbers of women, again, that are going to work in domestic service. Others will find jobs in the textile mills. Industrialized labor is not exclusively male. There are various industries where women tend to be accepted. Women tend to be very active in terms of participation. Remember, these are younger women. These tend to be unmarried women. And of course, these women also get paid less than the men do. Unfortunately, some women do have trouble finding a position. And so they, in some cases, turn to the world's oldest profession, which is, of course, prostitution. And we'll talk a little bit more about prostitution and especially life in the slums a little bit towards the end of our discussion today. Now, it's also worth noting that the nature of this work is very different than what you or I probably experience today. When most of us think about a job, we think about, okay, this is a place that I'm going to work. I have my home life that's separate. I I work in order to make money, in order to do the things that I want to do. Very few of us would say, I want to work at a job where it basically consumes my life, where basically I'm working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. But my financial compensation is still kind of at the bottom end of the economic ladder, right? Some of you might be attorneys, you're lawyers, you you do work 12 or 14 hour days, you work 60, 80 hours a week, but hopefully at least you're, you're taking home a larger paycheck for that. But at the beginning of the 19th century, this is not the case. We would probably think more of, of the life of the typical factory worker more as a kind of prison sentence than as a career. These types of workers, as we'll see, they often live near the factories, they kind of live in dormitories. Their day starts promptly at 6 a.m. There's actually, in many cases, literally like a giant clock and a gatehouse and a timekeeper. If you're not through that gatehouse by 6 a.m. promptly, then you could be fined large amounts of money. Some factory overseers, and by the way, they are in many cases called overseers, so incorporating that idea of slavery almost a little bit. Some of them practice something called waiting. So if you show up late to work, they're going to tie heavy weights around you, and you have to just carry those weights around as you go through your, your workday. Can you imagine that? Those of you that are uh, have graduated from high school or college or working right now, imagine if I just strapped some 10-pound weights to your shoulders or to your feet, and you had to work all day wearing those 10, 15-pound weights. It's almost like a punishment. It's almost like a, a, a morality or a, a sort of parental control to it that would strike us today as wildly inappropriate. Now, workers do receive a number of scheduled breaks during the day, but again, this is all sort of rigidly determined in advance, right? So you might have 15 minutes for tea here, you might have 30 minutes for lunch, but if you're late, if you take too much time, there are very strong consequences. So again, the idea of working 12, 13, 14-hour shifts is not uncommon, A lot of these workers, as I said, they live in dormitories that are literally right next door to the factory because if you're working six days a week, 14 hours a day, you're not going to want to have a 30-minute commute. You're not going to want to spend an hour on public transportation as we do today, which, of course, they didn't have uh, at the same degree at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, there's another element to the way that work happened then that's, that's very different than today, which is that it was very transitory. It was very irregular. People basically worked contract jobs. You might work at a factory. You might be a domestic servant for a couple months. But that wasn't your expectation that that job would always be there. 
And so there's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of salespeople. There's a lot of, you know, I'm going to pick this thing up and, and try to sell it. Those of you that are fans of old movies, you might remember the old milkman. Right? There always used to be milkmen in these old movies. Think about what is a milkman. Well, you pick up your milk. It's fresh. It's directly from the cows, from the farm. You're going to carry it around. You're going to try to sell it. So I'm going to knock on your door and say, do you need any milk today? And you say, no, I'm, I'm fine. We don't need milk. So then I just go to the next house. Or even going back to the 1940s and 50s. To be a salesman didn't just meant that you sold stuff from a shop, but it meant that you literally went door to door. It was very hard to predict. How many vacuum cleaners am I going to sell today? How much meat am I going to sell today? But that was very natural and very normal during the 19th century. So there's a lot of transitory elements to this story for these migrants, for the work that they do, and even for the places that they live. I was just talking about these these numbers of migrants coming to the cities, and I think for most of us when I say that, you tend to imagine that as a kind of one-off deal, right? I live on the farm, now I live in Glasgow, boom, it's done. The actual experience of many of these migrants is that they move around from city to city looking for work, trying to find something as substantial and as as long-lasting as they can, but in many cases, again, it's still transitory. In the German town of Duisburg, for example, 70% of all immigrants move on just after one year in the town of Duisburg. And that's not because Duisburg is just like a terrible place to live. It's just a consequence of the nature of the market. There is regular turnover. People are moving around a lot. And this links back to something that I said at the beginning of the podcast talking about identity, right? It's one thing to say, okay, I used to live in this place. Now I live someplace else. I guess this will be my new identity. But what if I keep moving around? What if I spend a year in London and a year in Birmingham and then a year in Leeds and, and two years in Liverpool? What am I? Where am I from? The old way of thinking about just, well, it's the locality where you live, that's starting to break down. And I have to come up with a new identity to kind of replace that. And that new identity, of course, becomes kind of class-based or socialism or national identity, which is then kind of vertically organized. There is kind of one exception to this, and it's a fascinating one to think about, which is international migration which does start and happen across the course of the 19th century. If we're talking about the English example, you're drawing on these workers where people are coming, where are they coming from? In the first half of the 19th century, many of them are Irish. Many of them will come from Ireland and move to places in big British cities. And when they do, they don't just come and say, okay, I'm an Irishman in, you know, uh, in New York, I'm an Irishman in London, okay, well, you know, what's here? They basically follow the the path that their predecessors have set. So when John O'Neill of Ireland comes to London in 1815, for example, he's basically going to follow in the path, in the footsteps of his father, who had done the same thing a couple years earlier. So you start to get these ethnic neighborhoods or enclaves, right? All the Irish start going to the same neighborhoods because that's where the other Irish people are. And so this happens all across Europe, all across the 19th century. Later on, you'll see people moving from Scandinavia, Ireland, southern Italy, the Jewish parts of especially Poland. You'll find people coming from southern Germany. 
And so these large cities like a New York, like a London, you start to have a significant portion of the population that is from a different country. Okay, so far I've been talking about the migrants. Let's talk a little bit about where they live and what their experiences are like. One of the first things that we can kind of note is that when you have this large influx of people to cities, the big question is where are you going to put them all? Something that we've witnessed here in the United States and in many of the kind of growing urban communities is, okay, where are we going to put them all? We'll put them in the suburbs. If the suburbs are full, we'll put them in exurbs. We'll just keep building housing development after housing development after housing development, and we'll expand the kind of geographic space of the city. This isn't really an option in the first half of the the 19th century in Europe. European cities at that time still had medieval walls, and in many cases, they also had sort of new fortifications, kind of earthworks that were put up, star forts, basically that limited the space the geographical space of the city. So what do you do? Well, some of you might say, well, you build up, right? We could build skyscrapers. We could build apartment buildings. But in the first half of the 19th century, steel is still relatively new. And even when it starts to be used more and more in the middle part of the 19th century, you're not going to take valuable steel and invest it in housing for the kind of poorest of the poor because they're not going to be able to pay the rent to help you make your money back. And so as a result, spatially speaking, there aren't really good answers to this problem of urban crowding. And so instead, what we're going to see is all these people basically just get dumped into the same spatial areas, especially the same poor neighborhoods. Now, as people move up the social scale, they do become middle class, they do become tradesmen, they do become... Uh, bookkeepers and things like that. And so there are many neighborhoods that are not going to be like the ones that I'm going to describe for you in just a second. But for working class people, especially the ones that are at the very bottom of the economic scale, their situation is going to become very bleak very quickly. Now in England, the immediate solution to this is to build these kind of row houses that are very characteristic of London. If you drive around London today, you'll, you'll see these kind of uh, they almost look like condos. They're, they're basically usually one or two stories. They'll have a couple rooms in them. They're all built kind of next to each other. And, you know, today's London, that's actually not that bad, right? They're super expensive because everybody wants to live in London. But in terms of the inside, the, the, the space that, that you need, it's not horrible, right? You could do worse. In the 19th century, however, when they're building a lot of these uh, little row houses, they are thinking again, not I'm, I'm thinking about the quality of life that my tenants will have. They're thinking about, let me invest as little as possible in this and let me get as much money back out of it. And so one of the things that they do is they tend to build these row houses back to back and side to side. So unless you're lucky enough to live on the corner, chances are that three of the walls in your house are going to be shared with other, other houses, other, other people which means you cannot have a window or a door. We're not going to be able to get lots of natural light into these uh, back-to-back row houses. We're not going to be able to just open the windows and air things out because there is no stream of air that can actually cross through your house, right? It can kind of come in, but then there's nowhere for it to go. In addition, they also kind of build these in a sort of U-shape. 
So instead of just having a street and you open your door and, and there's clearly a street there, basically half of these row homes open up into little courtyards, not onto streets themselves. And so the courtyards are often smaller than the width of the street. So even if I have a window, even if I have a door, it doesn't actually open up onto any light. It doesn't open up onto any air circulation. Sometimes they even build buildings in those courtyards so I could live in a place that doesn't have any windows. And so the result, as I said, is this kind of tremendous crowding that happens. In a neighborhood such as Hempstead in London, which is a, a more of a middle-class, upper-class neighborhood, we're talking about five to three people living per acre, which doesn't seem that, that awful, right? Today, many, at least in the United States, many middle-class houses are built on about a third of an acre. Kensington, that number is 16.2 people per acre. Still, this seems very reasonable to us today. But if we move to a slum like St. Giles, in 1851, we're talking about 221.2 people per acre. In another slum called The Strand, we're talking about 255 people uh, living in just one acre of land on average. That is incredibly crowded, incredibly difficult. We're talking about housing where basically you have one room that's kind of the communal room. Uh, it's the family room, the living room, the dining room. You probably have one bedroom that everyone sleeps in. Mom, dad, maybe grandma and grandpa, maybe all the kids. And then you have a communal kitchen that is shared with everyone else in that neighborhood. Of course, we've left out the bathrooms, right? Where do people go to the bathrooms? As we'll see later on, they're still using kind of a chamber pot system, but you don't have a dedicated room for a bathroom. What you have is an outhouse. And that outhouse will usually be located either in the courtyard or even more often, we'll just stick it under the stairs because there's nowhere else to put it. Think about what life is like under the stairs. It's dark and there is very little air circulation. And so then putting the place where everyone is putting their refuse under the stairs, that's going to be one of the worst possible places that we could put it. Another fun fact of life in this time, there's no running water in these apartments or in these houses. Usually there'll be kind of like a public water source. We'll have a public well or something like that. That'll be on the street. So every day that you want any type of water for anything you want to do, you have to go out and get the pot of water and bring it back. So we get these kind of incredible situations. I mentioned Kensington. Uh, there is a slum that, that gets formed there a little bit later in the 19th century. You're talking about a thousand people living in 83 of these little sort of one room or two room row houses. And there are only 49 bathrooms for those thousand people. You're talking about a situation again where all the members of a family are basically living together in one bed. Can you imagine that? If those of you that have larger families, especially brothers and sisters, can you imagine if you grew up not just sharing a room with one sibling, but with your parents and with all the siblings? Now, these are actually the people in the, in the slums that are winning. This is actually the good situation. I haven't told you kind of what happens to the, 
the people that are kind of losing at the economic game in the slums themselves. Many people can't afford to live in one of these crowded row houses. And so one of the things that they have are lodging homes. Lodging homes are kind of like a dormitory. You might have 12, 14, 16 people sleeping in separate beds, but those beds would be in like a common room. Think about like a, a modern youth hostel, but one that's not maintained as well. Maybe you would, you would pay a pence or two, a couple pennies essentially, in order to be able to stay in that lodging establishment. Now, for those who are indigent, there is, after 1834, a form of public kind of housing that they put together. These are called workhouses, and we'll go into more detail about them in our bonus podcast episode about urbanization and how they solve some of these problems that we're talking about. But the workhouse is essentially a prison. So basically, if you couldn't afford to support yourself, they would put you in this kind of prison-like state, this prison-like dormitory, and you would literally have to check in, give up all your personal possessions, and you would work. Uh, they would give you some, some compensation for that. They would give you some food for that. But basically, they split up families. It, it's almost so close to going to prison. Very few of us would, would ever accept something like that today. So most of these poor people, most of these migrants, they're coming into these slums, coming into these areas. Again, very, very difficult conditions, right? Massive crowding, massive shared kitchens, shared outhouses. There is no anonymity in that. There is no individuality in that. You're basically just trying to survive as long as you can. Incidentally, I've been talking about England and I've been talking about sort of row houses. On the continent, it is a similar situation, but slightly different, right? As we say in Thailand, same, same, but different. The major difference in continental slums and continental apartments uh, is basically instead of building these little row houses, you have flats. So you'll build these apartment blocks. People will still only have one or two rooms. Uh, the quality of them can also be quite poor. But people are living in kind of these larger apartment blocks. Now, if you've been to any major continental European city, most of the apartment blocks you see today, first of all, most of them were built after World War II because they were destroyed during World War II. But if you go to a city like, let's say, Paris, which was not heavily bombed during the war, the apartment blocks that you see there were actually built in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. So they tend to be a little bit later. They tend to be a little bit nicer than the period that we're talking about right now. I mentioned a second ago that when we're talking about these slums, that people are kind of just trying to get by, just trying to make ends meet. And as we'll see in the rest of our podcast today, this is a common theme for people living through the era. This idea of you, it doesn't matter what you want or what your desires are. You are basically just trying to survive. And so consider the case of a man named Ernst Niedermeyer, who lived in a two-room apartment in Hamburg with his wife and five kids. Basically, again, they've only got two rooms. The five kids sleep in a single straw mattress in one room. The couple sleeps in their own room, in the main room, and so they're actually doing pretty well for themselves by that uh, standard. But they say to themselves, this is not enough. We have extra room. We can make a little bit more money. And so they actually rent out the parlor, and they have a lodger who pays them a little bit of money to be able to sleep there. Now, can you imagine if you said in your house, okay, you know, I live in a house, I live in an apartment, this is great. Um, I need to make a little bit of extra money. I'm going to rent my couch out. I'm going to let somebody rent that out 
per day, per week, or whatever, and we'll just have this stranger living with us. Now, lest you think that Ernst is just some kind of crazy, uh, entrepreneurial to the max type of guy, this is how two-thirds of the people live in the city of Glasgow in the year 1861. So two-thirds of them have things like lodgers, are living in these crowded situations, and just trying to do whatever they can to make ends meet. We see this sense of frugality extended in basically all walks of life. And most of us would say, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do to get the you know, boxes checked to be able to survive. But after that, I want some leisure time. After that, I want some money for some new clothes or a new car or something like that. Right? We live in a consumer society where most of us are not worried about our basic needs. Life in the middle of the 19th century is very, very different. As I mentioned, there's this sense of frugality, this sense of do whatever you can to survive. And an excellent example of that is this 30-year-old postman, also from Hamburg. Uh, his name is Johannes Fiege. And Johannes works at a government job. He's a postman. Being a postman is a good job. That's something that's going to be more resistant to the boom and bust economic cycle. It's not like a factory where if somebody stops buying that product or if you've made too many of them, then they just say, okay, we don't have any work for you today. So Johannes would seem to have it pretty good. Nevertheless, he spends his spare time making toys for his children, and he repairs and upholsters furniture on the side. Johannes is very clever, and one of the things that he notices is working at the post office when he finds these kind of old postal uniforms. People don't want to use them anymore. He says, huh, why would we throw that away? Takes them home, gives it to his wife, and the wife makes clothes out of them for the kids. So there's this sense of industriousness, there's this sense of do anything you can in order to survive. And we'll see this reflected even more so in food, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Now, when I say food, some of you out there are foodies. I'm a foodie. My wife is a foodie. We love the idea of trying new foods, going to different places. Right? The idea that, well, I'm just eating food in order to get basic calories, that seems kind of boring. Right? If I had to live my life just eating bread and spam and kind of very boring type of foods, it, it would be very boring. I, I would be very unexcited, right? I would be very depressed. We live in a world where the food supply, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, our food supply is constant, it's very strong, and it's very varied. For working class people living in the 19th century, however, for someone even like a Bob Cratchit, who is not quite working class, he's sort of lower middle class, and he's a clerk working for Ebenezer Scrooge. But his diet is not going to be full of things that he wants to eat. It is going to be dominated by the quest for calories. Basically, working class people in this period are doing anything that they can to survive. Right? We talked in our initial podcast episode a little bit about the Irish potato famine in the 1840s. Millions of people leave Ireland because they just can't get enough calories in order to survive. So what do people eat in the middle of the 19th century, especially working class people? Well, the number one food is going to be bread because bread is full of calories, right? It's funny. Everybody today, especially those of you that are on diets, it's all like, oh, carbs are bad. Don't eat carbs. Carbs have lots of calories in them. But in the 19th century, that is an attraction. That is a virtue. We need calories. 
We just want to be able to survive, to literally have enough energy to burn during the day. Now, the type of bread that people tend to eat is the kind of heavy rye bread, um, very popular, especially in German supermarkets today, because those types of bread have a lot of calories to them. There's a lot of mass to them. The white bread that today many people kind of hate, the Wonder Bread, uh, that's actually a delicacy that wealthier people eat because it's softer. Most working class people are going to sit down to a nice breakfast, lunch, and or dinner of bread, like heavy rye bread, and some butter. Now, the number two food source, I've already kind of hinted at it, is the potato, which is also, again, a food that is easy to eat, high in calories, lots of of kind of starch. So your diet as a working class person is heavily starch-based, and it's basically centered on, on the notion not of flavor or taste, but it's especially just about, can I get the calories that I need to survive? Meat, on the other hand, for people living in cities, not so much the case in uh, rural areas, but people living in cities, meat is a relative rarity until the invention of refrigeration towards the end of the 19th century. Now, some working class people will get some pork every now and then. Um, Sausages, as you know, very common in places like Germany, England as well. But for the most part, people are not eating lots of, of protein Lots of meat, like we would think today, especially not red meat, right? When Scrooge shows up and is like, Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit, here, I've got, you know, this, uh, this wonderful turkey dinner for you. That is actually a delicacy. That is a kind of unique Christmas treat for them. Now, another thing that people love to eat today, people would tell you is the most healthy thing to eat, are fruits and vegetables. But these are also pretty rare when you're talking about life in an urban area in a city. Fruits and vegetables are seasonal. We don't have refrigeration to be able to ship them from the southern hemisphere during the cold winter months. So you might in May be able to get asparagus in many parts. Uh, If you've ever been to Germany, especially southern Germany, in May it's asparagus season and every restaurant has like specials that you can get with asparagus. Well, that's because it's seasonal. That's because it's fresh. So there, there is some fruit and vegetables that are available, but it tends to only be at the season, and it usually sends, tends to be more available if you're living on a farm or, or in a rural setting, a village, uh, than it is if you're living in one of these working-class slums. So one of the consequences of this is, if you're thinking about the economics of food production and food circulation, food has a tendency to spoil. But you're living in an area where we can't really allow the food to spoil because if we're throwing away tons and tons of food, well, now we're losing money. And especially for some of these people that are salespeople, you can't afford to throw away that food. If I'm a milkman and I have my two dozen um, jars of milk that I'm trying to sell that day and I only sell 12 of them, well, the milk isn't going to keep that long, especially if it's hot out. But I can't afford just to throw the milk away, right? I had to pay money to get that milk. It was an investment. So what am I going to do? The answer is that I am going to put things in the food, whether we're talking about liquids, whether we're talking about solids, but I am going to adulterate the food in order to make it still seem appetizing or consumable, for lack of a better term. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Let's say we, we get in a time machine, we go back to the 19th century, it's London, it's 1840s, uh, we're going to go have a, a, a meetup with Charles Dickens. What are we going to order when we walk into the bar? What types of things might we want to drink? Some of you might say, well, uh, you know, it's London, it's Charles Dickens, we walked into a pub, let's get some beer. Beer is good to drink, right? We don't want to drink water. Water is, of course, um, one of the problems with water at this time period, as we'll see, is it can be very contaminated. It can contain things like cholera or other forms of uh, disease, dysentery. Um, It's very dangerous to drink water. That's why human beings kind of invented alcohol. We invented beer and wine because it sterilizes the liquid to some extent. So what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to order some beer. What happens to beer when you leave it out for too long? Those of you that are in college right now, you're listening to this. Many of you have, have been at a party or you've had beer in your rooms or something like that. You leave it out. The next morning you wake up and the beer is skunky. The beer is cloudy. The carbonation has gone away. Right? It's, it doesn't taste good. So what if we're selling beer, but the beer has gone skunky? What can we do? Well, some people used to put bisulfate of lime in it. They would put borax or even sulfuric acid into the beer. Sulfuric acid, by another name, is acid rain. So that stuff that, uh, especially in the 80s, was like deforesting Central Europe, they put that in the beer in order to make it seem less skunky. So probably we don't want to order a beer. How about tea, right? This is England we're talking about. Tea time, that seems very English. Think about how you use a tea leaf or You know, nowadays we have the sort of disposable packages where the tea leaves are ground up. So you put that in the water and then you throw it away when you're done with it, right? Okay, one and done. Good 19th century working class person looks at that and goes, wait a minute, that's that's ridiculous. Why would you throw it away after just one usage? We can keep using it over and over again. And that way we can maximize the kind of economic return from it. Well, what happens to the tea leaves is they get used. They become... Uh, obviously a little bit spoiled. They become, it's obvious that they've been used. And so one of the things that they begin to do is they dry them out and then they add a little copper sulfate or chromate of lead to the tea leaves to resell them. Now, I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor, but my guess is that drinking chromate of lead is not a good idea long-term. Last one of these uh, drink examples, I'll give you, okay, we're not going to do beer, we're not going to do water, we're not going to do tea. Um, how about a nice glass of milk? Right? I was just talking about you know, what, what it was like to, uh, to have the milkman. Clearly, that's a good way to go, right? The milkman comes, it's relatively fresh. And we can tell if milk has gone bad because it curdles. So how does the good entrepreneurial milkman prevent his milk from curdling so that he can keep selling it? Well, we could use a little bit more of that borax, which is an industrial kind of strength cleaner. Or maybe we'll even put some formaldehyde in it to keep it from curdling. Now think about that. People are drinking formaldehyde, chromate of lead, sulfuric acid, all of these kind of just completely nasty things to us today. But at that time period, again, you don't have the ability to say, oh, well, I'm concerned about health. Oh, you know, my my ethics say that I'm not going to resell these tea leaves or something like that. Life is at the edge of a knife. 
just to give you one example of a food that this happens to, right? One of the things that happens is uh, you're a baker, you're baking bread. Bread is usually, especially the dough, is a yellowish color. And that yellow color comes from having the egg yolks in it, right? What if we're out of egg yolks? What's something that we can put into flour to turn it yellow and something that's free, something that doesn't cost anything, something that every human being has in an abundant supply that they discharge and get rid of every single day. If you said urine, you're correct. People put pee into the flour when they run out of eggs to make it more yellow colored. This is the mindset of the the 19th century urban, especially working class slum citizen, right? Do anything you can to survive. Now, so far we've been talking about people, but there are other elements to the 19th century city that would really surprise you. And again, I use this idea of a time machine. Those of you that have seen the the movie Back to the Future, let's say you got in your DeLorean, we hop back to even the 1880s. What what do we notice first when we get out of the DeLorean? One of the first things that we're going to notice is animal life. Now today, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about animals. Think about your last encounter with an animal wherever you live. Maybe somebody was walking a dog, they had a pet, you went over to their house, they had a cat, okay, bow wow, you know, pet them, whatever. Maybe you were walking outside, you saw a bird or a squirrel. And what was that experience like, seeing a bird or a squirrel, right? You were walking down the street, and you looked over, and there was a pigeon, and you looked at it, and it looked at you, and then you kept walking. And there's no story there because you didn't really interact with it. I mean, the worst thing that happens with pigeons, of course, is that they they poop while they're flying around and it lands on you. And for a second, it's like, oh, this is gross. But you don't really interact with animals, especially in an urban environment anymore. Go back to the middle of the 19th century. And one of the things that we mentioned is how are people getting around places? Well, besides walking, they are being driven by horses. A typical 19th century city is full of omnibuses, cabs, carriages, carts, etc. And so in a town like Hamburg, as late as 1892, you're talking about 12,000 horses on the streets of a city. Now, what do horses do besides carry people around? They eat and they poop. But we're not in a period where people are thinking about, oh, okay, I've got all this uh, horse poop that I'm dealing with. I need to clean it up. I need to make sure it's got the bag after it, right? This is the 19th century. People aren't worried about that. The horses are pooping wherever, on the street, and then you're walking through it. Or even worse, it dries out because, let's say, it hasn't rained for a couple days, dries out, it becomes dust. And so as all these animals are moving around now, all the dust that they're kicking up has horse poop in it. And now I'm breathing in the horse poop. 19th century city also has things like pigs and cattle that are actually in the city itself. There are chickens. Of course, some people keep chickens today, right, even in urban environments. But what what happens when you have a chicken? It doesn't just lay eggs and walk around and, uh, you know, aerate the soil and eat the bugs. But the male chickens like to cluck, like to crow. And so you have the noise of pigs scrounging around. You have the noise of roosters crowing. Some people keep beehives. 
Don't have a lot of sugar in the 19th century. Not yet. It will happen in the latter half or the latter third of the 19th century. But in the first half, there's not a lot of sugar to be had. So I'll keep a beehive. Hmm. What could go wrong with keeping a beehive in a crowded urban environment? I mentioned there's not a lot of meat. One of the solutions to that is to breed rabbits. Rabbits breed quickly. You can get some good meat off of them. But of course, rabbits escape. And when they escape, they don't just walk around and look cute and, you know, kind of bat their eyes at you. They eat all the vegetables that they can get their hands on or their, I guess, paws on. So keeping all of these animals around has consequences. Now, another animal that some of you do actually have encounters with, especially if you live in a big city like New York or London, you spend any time on the subway, you'll see them. Those are rats. And as you might imagine, with all the filth, with all the refuse, without a a good way of disposing of trash, there are a lot of rats in the 19th century, and they will carry disease with them as well. But again, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, uh, in 1899, conditions in Hamburg get so bad that the police actually declared a rat war. They said, if you show up at the police station with a dead rat, we will give you five pennies for every dead rat. Now, just to give you a sense of the 19th century mindset, this doesn't work. Because when these people living in these poor neighborhoods, especially these these, uh, urban slums, when they hear, oh, I can get five pennies for every dead rat, their first thought is not, let me go out and find a rat and kill it. It's, let me find a rat and I'll start breeding rats and then killing some of the rats. And now I found a really cool way to make money. So cities, again, are overrun with animals. We're talking also about dogs, not just the nice, sweet dog, you know, the shih tzu that you see walking down the street or the chocolate lab that your neighbor has. We're talking about wild dogs, dogs that are out, you know, basically stealing, eating, pooping, barking, attacking. We're talking about dead animals that are all over the cities. And so again, the urban landscape of a city, especially in these slums, it it would be so unrecognizable to us today, especially just stepping out of of our time machine. Now, another way we can find this out, uh, another thing that we would notice as soon as we got out of that car would be the smell. Because 19th century cities, as I mentioned, they do not have modern waste disposal systems. They do not have the ability to process all of this waste that that is being generated by everything in the city. And again, just to give you some, some ideas of what I'm talking about here, One historian has estimated that in your typical 19th century town, horses and other animals put over 7 million tons of poop on the streets. 7 million tons per year. How are we going to clean all that up? That's a lot to to deal with. For people, the easiest answer is still the old-fashioned answer. We don't have running water yet. Uh, We do have some flush toilets that are designed, but they're not going to be located in these working class slums. And so the answer is the old fashioned chamber pot, which, as we saw, is not just usually one family has a chamber pot for themselves or their family, but it's a communal chamber pot. And it's often located in an awful place like under the stairs or in the courtyard. Now, once that chamber pot is full, what do you do? Well, they build these things called cesspits which are kind of like brick holes in the ground that are fairly large. It's kind of like the precursor to a septic tank. And you dump all of your urine and your feces 
into the cesspit, and over time the urine kind of evaporates, and you just kind of wait as the poop piles up. Now, once the poop is full, once the cesspit cannot be kind of um, uh, used anymore, what you do is you call something called a nightman. And the nightman comes at night. They were actually legally restricted. They had to do this at night. But they come with their shovel and their cart, and they literally shovel out all of the old poop, dung, feces, whatever you want to call it, and they put it in a cart and they haul it away. I can't really imagine many worse jobs. A chimney sweep would probably be up there because you're inhaling a lot of the uh, soot into your lungs. But being a nightman must have been pretty awful, right? This is not one of the jobs that many people would look forward to doing. Now, once they gather that up, what do they do with that poop? They dump it in the nearest body of water. And in fact, in some places, you don't have a cesspit. You just directly kind of funnel your your trash, your refuge, your human waste directly into the river. Again, I know I'm giving you a lot of statistics basically from England. Uh, It's because there is a wealth of information about uh, these kind of urban crowding problems because they sort of start first in the UK. Um, But from the city of London in the 1850s, we're talking about 260 tons of raw sewage being dumped into the Thames River Every single day, 260 tons of raw sewage every day. As you can imagine, this is going to have pretty profound consequences on the local environment and especially on the environment of the people living in the cities. As early as 1821, the Lord Mayor of London says, okay, let's do an experiment. I know there's a lot of Uh, sewage being put into the river and some industrial waste as well. Let's just see how polluted the city of London is. And so he takes a bucket of river water and he puts some fish in there. And within 60 seconds, the fish die. Now, he also puts some eels in a bucket. He has a separate bucket, so a second one. Puts some eels in there. The eels make it all of four minutes before they die. And so even as early as the 1820s, The situation in terms of sewage, in terms of sanitation, is horrible in most European cities, especially in the UK. In fact, in 1858, there's kind of a heat wave that hits London during the summer in July and August. And because there's temperatures over 100 degrees, a lot of the river water, a decent amount of the river water, actually evaporates from the Thames. And so the the, the tide, the Thames is also a tidal uh, river, especially in London, So the tide sinks kind of lower than it normally would. When it does so, it exposes all of this raw sewage that's just kind of hanging out, waiting to break down on the edges of the river. It leads to something called the Great Stink of 1858. Essentially, things get so bad that Parliament, which is located near the river, they start like soaking the curtains of Parliament in lime chloride. And even then, it's not really successful. So they're, they're going to adjourn parliament. They're going to stop the motions and the mechanics of government because the river smells too bad. It smells too much like uh, poop and raw sewage. And by the 1860s, they start to realize there are some problems with this. We'll talk about cholera uh, and a guy named John Snow in just a second and the discovery of how disease circulates. But by the 1860s, they do start working on centralized systems. 
But it's still, it takes a long time. It takes 30, 40 years for it to catch up to the massive numbers of people that are there that are generating this waste. Now, so far I've been talking about poop and and kind of uh, sewage and, and what do we do with that, sort of explaining the problems because there's no running water. Of course, another thing that we use running water for is bathing. Most of us today, it depends on what part of the world you're in, most of us today would say, if you go a couple days without bathing, that, that might be a little problematic, uh, especially in, in most parts of Europe and the United States today. If you don't bathe every day, people would, would look at that and say, well, you're starting to smell a little bit. Let's, let's bathe. Let's, let's at least go every other day, right? Let's not, let's not push boundaries. In a period before you have running water, before you literally have bathrooms in a lot of these working class houses, People don't have the ability to bathe. People aren't going to go down to the local pump and get all the, the, the water and then carry it up the stairs and, and then wash themselves in a, in a formal, like, complete body way. They might have that little dish in a mirror and they would wash their hands, they would wash their face. To alleviate this problem, basically, authorities in many countries, by the middle of the 19th century, begin building public bathhouses, and these can become very popular. But the idea of only bathing once or twice a year, that's fairly common. That's not unusual. A lot of these, these guys working in the factories, you know, shoveling coal all day, you know, the idea that they're only going to bathe once or twice a year, it's, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. And so as you can imagine, these conditions in these cities tend to be extremely unhygienic. I don't think actually if we had a time machine that many of us would last very long because there is so much disease, there is so much just unhygienic environments that people are living in. Now, I mentioned disease. One of the very sort of popular or prevalent diseases in your major 19th century cities is cholera. And cholera basically spreads through contamination of the water supply. And so one of the things that begins to happen is as you have these cesspits that are basically, again, they're built with kind of brick as the liner, well, brick is permeable. Brick is not waterproof. Brick doesn't hold in the, the sewage like a modern septic tank. And so especially when you have a brick cesspit and it's right next to, let's say, four or five feet away from the public well that you're bringing up the water that everybody's drinking in, it's not hard for that fecal matter to kind of leak through and contaminate the wells that people are using. And so this example that I just gave you uh, it's basically discovered in 1854. There's a, a massive outbreak of cholera in this one London neighborhood called Broad Street. And so this uh, scientist, this English physician named John Snow, not to be confused with uh, the guy from Game of Thrones, but John Snow was doing research on it. He was curious about the water supply, and he actually mapped out where all the cases of cholera were, were in the city and then where the, the pump was that people were getting water from. And so he was able to kind of identify the link between the two. One of the interesting parts of the story is he actually found one case of this same type of cholera, but it's way far away on the other side of London. And he's like, well, that's curious. How did this random household get cholera that was so far away from where the major outbreak was, right? They're not interacting with those people. And so one of the things that they found was that they had originally been from that neighborhood. They really liked the water from the pump on Broad Street. And so their servant was going far away to get the water from that pump that was, that was contaminated. And so then they begin to realize, okay, this is how disease spreads. 
There was another theory out there called miasma theory that basically said, well, this is contaminated, bad air. And so what we need is kind of more light, more airflow. Uh, and this is how we can solve the problem of diseases like cholera. We'll talk about this in a separate podcast when we start talking about uh, the solutions to some of these problems uh, that, that we've been talking about today. Uh, but the Broad Street cholera outbreak kills 616 people just in that neighborhood. And of course, the minute that they take the pump handle off and people can't get water from that contaminated source anymore, then the, the problem kind of goes away. But cholera was one of the major killers of the 19th century in Europe. It took millions of lives over the course of the 19th century. Uh, one outbreak in Russia you know, it begins in 1847. It lasts until 1851. It literally kills a million people. But cholera is not the only disease that's out there. We have typhus, which is a disease that is spread by lice. We have typhoid, a disease that's spread by fecal matter, which, as we've just noted, there's plenty of fecal matter around in a 19th century city. Typhoid, incidentally, is also what kills Prince Albert. So it's not just a disease of the working class or of the poor. These things also impact even the wealthier and middle class districts of these cities. Perhaps the most common disease that one would encounter in this kind of urban environment, however, was tuberculosis or what they called consumption in the 19th century. In 1930, there was actually a survey done uh, on a major European city, and it concluded that 90% of the city's dwellers had been exposed to tuberculosis just by the time that they were 15. So if you think about the sounds of a 19th century city, one of the things that you would hear is people coughing frequently. And not just kind of a cough, <coughs> okay, I'm sick, which actually I am sick right now. I'm, I'm just recovering from COVID here in January 2022. That's probably why I sound a little bit nasally, even listening. But when we're talking about tuberculosis, we're talking about that deep, phlegmy cough that's in your lungs. And I'm not going to recreate it right now because it would sound gross. But you, you've heard it at some point in your life. You've heard that kind of deep, like, like you're you know, going to bring up a lung. That was a common sound of the 19th century city. Finally, the last element of the city that I want to talk about is the idea of crime. As you might imagine, when we're talking about slums, even today, right, we're talking about slums as liminal spaces. We're talking about slums as areas where legality, public norms, just kind of the way that upstanding people are supposed to act and behave, especially in poor areas, there's an assumption that, that those kind of governing bodies, ideas, norms, that those kind of fade away just a little bit. And so the 19th century city had plenty of slums, and there were places that were kind of like that. But if we're thinking about what does a 19th century slum look like, we are talking about a place that is poorly lit, where there is a lot of shadow, and things can happen in the shadows that don't necessarily happen in broad daylight. We're thinking about a landscape that is full of urchins. We're talking about orphans. Young children that, that don't have parents, don't have a guardian, that are kind of just living on the streets and that are, are you know, not opposed to things like stealing or hustling, right? Where does the line get drawn between hustling and legitimate selling of things? We're talking about areas where there is frequent prostitution, right? The people living, especially women, young women living in these working class slums, some of them are 
very desperate for money. And so as we said, what do they sell when you have nothing else left to sell? Well, you sell your body. And so wealthier people will come to the slums essentially looking for women that they can pay for sex. And so again, we're talking about liminal spaces. Another way to kind of think about this idea of what does a liminal space mean is think about the idea of uh, drinking and drunk people and the way that they behave, right? Usually in polite society, I don't just urinate wherever I feel like, right? I feel the need to go to the bathroom. I usually go and look for a bathroom, right? If I just pull my pants down on the street corner and pee, that's not just illegal in many places, but it's socially frowned upon. People would be like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Right? Those of you that have little kids, right? when my son was five, remember we went to look at this uh, display of model trains, and at one point he just kind of walks down the steps uh, and just pulls his pants down and gets ready to adventure pee. And it's like, no, 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 we don't do that. We have to tell him that. We have to explain that to him. But what happens when people are drunk? What happens when they're in an urban environment and they, they really have to go and they just pee on the wall? They find an alley. They find a tree. And they just go, right? Those normal laws and rules and norms that govern civilized society, to use a kind of loaded term there, they get kind of set to the side. Right? We're not always going to pee outside, but I don't really care. I'm drunk. I don't really care. I have to go. Everything's, you know, mess anyways. I'll just go right here, whatever. Who cares? Right? I'm just trying to survive. I don't really care about the niceties of it. And so in many of these slums, again, there is a, a perception, a stereotype, a, a kind of a pejorative approach to them that look at them as being greeting grounds for crime. But there are also some reasons for that as well. It's not completely unfounded. It's not just prejudicial. So there's no better example of 19th century crime, especially in these kind of slums, in these working class neighborhoods, than the case of Jack the Ripper. Now, Jack was not the first serial killer ever, but the murders take place at a very specific moment in British history when Britons are thinking about a variety of issues related to the onset of modernity. And I know we haven't talked about modernity yet. We'll get to modernity later in our series. But basically, we're talking about, okay, so what's it like to live in an industrial, imperial society at a moment that Germany, France, other countries are now competing with Britain, and in some ways, it seems like they're almost overtaking the British. What does it feel like to live in a globalized economy are we worried about things like national decline? What about traditional Victorian moral codes? But right? I mentioned these, these slums can often be liminal spaces where people are doing things like, let's say, living together outside of wedlock. What are the consequences of that going to be? Right? There's a lot of anxiety about that, and it increases as we get closer and closer to the end of the 19th century. What about the political aspect of these working-class slums. We're going to talk more about the development of socialism as an ideology and as a political philosophy during our next podcast, but for people that are living in the 1880s, 1890s, looking around, they see this working class as a likely target or source of revolution. What ends up happening in Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution, that's what people are afraid of in Britain, in France, in Germany, in, in other places, especially Italy. That's what they're thinking in the 1880s and 1890s, right? There's 
a whole bunch of anxiety and a whole bunch of fear, and a lot of it gets focused on these working class slums. So this murder, or the series of murders that takes place, happens in a district called Whitechapel in London. And Whitechapel is located in what is now known as the sort of East End. For those of you that are unfamiliar with London's geography, it's located close to the docks. And in a period in the 1880s, the docks are going to be a great source of labor or a great source of employment for people that have unskilled labor, for people who are migrants, people who are immigrants. Literally, I just go down to the dock and at some point, somebody that works there will come by and say, I need, you know, 10 young men to carry this stuff for today. I will pay you six shillings or six pence or whatever the, the, the exact amount was. And so they say, okay, I've got a job for a day. Great. So it tends to attract a lot of manual labor, but we're also talking about the poorest of the poor. We're talking about the transients. We're talking about uh, immigrants. By the 1880s, we're also talking about a lot of people from Ireland who are discriminated against in English society. And we're also talking about a lot of Jews from Eastern Europe who are fleeing pogroms and other acts of violence happening in uh, especially Russia, but also some other countries as well. So you have this massive numbers of people moving into the Whitechapel district. By the time of the Ripper murders, we're talking about 250,000 people living in an area that is about 357 acres. You can do the math on the ratio there, but that is an enormous amount of people living in small, small spaces. And so it's in this environment that these murders by Jack the Ripper take place. On the morning of August 31st, 1888, police found the first victim's body, uh, who was a woman named Mary Ann Nichols. Nichols was a prostitute who was basically seen drunk that night at 2 a.m. Nichols had been kicked out of her dormitory. So remember, we talked about these lodging houses, these, these places people go and they kind of pay per night for a bed. It's again, it's like the most basic form of of a place that someone can live in, a form of lodging. But Nichols is frequently drunk and she's kicked out of her dormitory because she can't pay the night's rent. And of course, one of the major issues that comes up is, well, wait a minute, you had enough money to get yourself drunk. How did you not have enough money then for a bed? And so before the Ripper murders, especially as people in not just Victorian England, but also in places like Germany, places like France, places like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as people in quote-unquote polite society look at these slums, there is a lot of judgment taking place. There's a lot of kind of moral judgment looking at these people saying, look, you're here not because of the conditions, not because of exploitation, you're here because of moral failings. And if you just stop drinking, you can pull yourself out of poverty and everything will be fine. At any rate, Nichols gets kicked out, and basically she's found the next morning. Her uh, neck has been slashed. Her throat has been opened. But part of what makes these murders so interesting and so sensational is the sexual nature of it as well. Um, Nichols also had been stabbed in her vagina and had her abdomen ripped open by a knife. Now, a little over a week later, the second victim, Annie Chapman, is found, and this time with more intensive removal of her inner organs. To some extent, it's a very similar story, right? Chapman is also transient. She was suffering from tuberculosis. She was seen in the early morning hours with a man, and then, of course, turns up dead. Like Nichols, Chapman's throat had also been cut. 
Her abdomen had been forcibly opened with a knife. Sorry to, to get kind of graphic here. Her intestines had been removed from her body and were placed on her left shoulder. And additionally, the killer had removed her uterus. So over the course of the following eight weeks, three similar murders took place, each characterized by this kind of combination of a slashed throat, bodily mutilation, and the removal of inner organs. Now, due to the ghastly nature of these killings, it's not surprising that this attracted a great deal of press attention, just as it would today. Initially, the press kind of called the killer Leather Apron because there really wasn't much that they knew about it. There was a lot of speculation that this must be a tanner or a butcher, somebody who obviously was involved in cutting things. Later on, there was some speculation about it possibly being a doctor because they obviously had a sort of skill with a knife or a surgeon. But they went initially with this name Leather Apron until later on they actually received a letter from someone purporting to be Jack the Ripper. Now, they actually, they got lots and lots of these letters. Most of them, of course, were forgeries. But this letter that comes out in late September 1888, it actually kind of predicts that the next victim this person is going to kill, they're going to cut off a, a piece of that victim's ear. And so this letter is signed Jack the Ripper, and eventually the authorities actually published it because they thought it was genuine. And they said, look, maybe somebody will recognize this person's handwriting. And so that's where the name Jack the Ripper comes from. It may have actually come from the killer himself, uh, or it may have come from someone who was kind of doing this elaborate hoax. I don't know. There's lots of books that are still written about it, lots of you know TV specials, internet specials. Over 100 years later, we're still fascinated by the story of Jack the Ripper. Now, despite this significant investigation by the Metropolitan Police, they conduct thousands of interviews, they collect all this forensic evidence, they write all these reports about who they think the murderer could be, they never actually end up catching uh, the, the person. The murders kind of just seem to stop, and there's some speculation about why that was. Uh, was Jack murdered himself? Did he just die? Was he imprisoned for something else? Or uh, was he sort of like a, a psychiatric patient, and so they, they caught him and they put him in one of these older institutions, which was uh, very much like a prison? Maybe he emigrated to the United States or to another country and started carrying out other types of crimes there, and we've just never been able to kind of connect those dots. But the result of all of this is that British society becomes fascinated by the story of the Ripper killings, becomes fascinated and looks at Whitechapel as being the source of the problem. People look at Whitechapel not as just a, a working-class slum, but as a sort of a den of evil, as this kind of noxious sort of uh, space that's just brewing and spewing forth evil and immorality and violence and, and also sexuality beyond and outside of marriage. And so it launches or provokes a number of reforms designed to kind of begin to finally combat this, this problem of the slums that we've been talking about. The reaction to the Ripper murders is not the first example of this in European history, as we'll see in the bonus episode that I'm going to do on how Europeans tried to address these situations. The, the first answers go back to the church, go back to the beginnings of creating a modern police force. A second major solution, and probably the most important, is urban architecture. Essentially, what will happen in places like Paris, places like Barcelona in Spain, is they will use the Enlightenment philosophy to kind of study the problem, to develop architectural solutions, 
and to use the idea of urban planning to redesign European cities to make them more livable, more accessible. For now, it's enough to say that the latter third of the 19th century, Europeans had become increasingly aware of the problematic nature of urbanization. Okay, so now that I've gone over the Ripper murders, food adulteration, all of these, you know, the amount of feces on the street, um, I've totally sold you on life in the 19th century European city. I do want to point out that not everything is so doom and gloom as I've, I've kind of played it up to be. There are medical advances in this period that begin to solve some of these problems. And we're, like I said, we're going to talk about those uh, on the bonus episode on Patreon. But the period that we're talking about also witnesses some advancements in terms of leisure and amusement. The mid to late 19th century is also a time when we have the development of these magnificent seaside resorts, especially in places like England, France, the Mediterranean. And they're accessible because of the railroad for middle-class people. And so the idea of taking the waters, of going away to the seaside for a nice weekend relaxing vacation, it's not going to be available for the people of Whitechapel, but it will be available especially for middle-class people living all around in other parts of major European cities. This is the era of great public parks and museums. Think of the transformations that Baron Haussmann carries out in Paris in the beginning in the 1850s. He creates these massive parks such as the Bois de Boulogne, the Bois de Vincennes, and many more. Hyde Park is a little bit earlier than that, Hyde Park from London, but Hyde Park is enormously popular during this period. Central Park in New York City, again, very much sort of mid-19th century urban space. If we had more time, we could also talk about the opening of the History Museum of France in the Palace of Versailles by King Louis-Philippe in 1837. Basically, if you've ever been to the Palace of Versailles, you go upstairs, there's this amazing kind of gallery of famous paintings, famous moments from French history. Louis-Philippe starts that Uh, in 1837 as a way to give middle-class people some buy-in, some amusement, and some kind of consciousness of the French nation, which is first beginning to percolate again in the 1820s and 1830s, uh, and we'll talk about that more in our lecture on nationalism. How many of you have been to a Madame Tussauds wax museum? Madame Tussauds is a real historical figure. She was actually involved in making what are called death masks Uh, during the French Revolution, and afterwards she ends up leaving France, and she starts making these kind of wax museums and opening them up to the public, and now you can see, you know, what these famous people's faces look like. This is also the area of great public monuments. We're talking about the Arc de Triomphe in Paris in 1836. We're talking about Trafalgar Square in London in 1844. Not everything is just about the built environment, however. This is a golden age of literature, With cities, many daily papers filled not only with kind of the news and the shocking stories like Jack the Ripper, but also the serialized great novels of the day by people like Charles Dickens, Hans Christian Andersen, Charlotte Bronte, Elizabeth Gaskell, Victor Hugo, Honoré de Balzac, Gustave Flaubert, Dumas, Georges Sand, the poetry of people like Charles Baudelaire and Lord Byron, Lewis Carroll, Anton Chekhov, I could spend 20 minutes just reading off names of great authors and poets from the middle of the 19th century. This is an explosion of literary culture uh, that is very much enjoyed by people living, middle-class people, in the 19th century. 
We also have colonial products that start becoming more and more available. Europeans sip tea and coffee in larger numbers. They eat chocolate and they drink beer and they hang out at the pubs and the taverns. And so there is a whole positive social side of urbanization that one could talk about and that we will try to talk about in a different podcast episode. We'll talk about the amusements and enjoyments that really make life more bearable for people living in this period. Now, all that said, it is undeniable that the psychological experience of crowding, of suffering, and striving to improve the lot of people who grew up in these urban slums had a profound impact on European history. Simply put, it forces many of these migrants, or even their children, to abandon the loyalties and identities that had guided their ancestors for centuries. Lost in the sea of humanity in a London, a Paris, or a Milan, people were forced to adopt new identities that helped them reconcile with the changes that had taken place. Exploring these two identities will be the subject of our next podcast episodes, respectively on socialism or class-based identity and on nationalism. We will see how these two identities began to supplant local, confessional, and regional notions of belonging, taking us down the path to the 20th century. But let's wrap things up for now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. To find out updates about upcoming episodes, you can follow us on social media at HistoryOTP on Twitter, or just History Off the Page on Facebook. You can also see a broader overview of all of the planned episodes on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about the topics related to urban history, you can access the bonus episodes by supporting us for just $5 a month on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening, and join us next time as we take history off the page. Off the page.